Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today talking about whiteness. It's a topic that often gets overlooked even when we're talking about race, but it's hard to fully understand and appreciate the impacts of race in our country and in our world if we don't think about whiteness. It turns out there is a narrative about whiteness that plays out unconsciously and most of us subscribe to without even realizing it. We're going to dive into that, see what it looks like, and talk about what parents of teenagers can do to have discussions about whiteness in this episode. We're here with David Mura, author of the book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself. He is a poet, fiction writer, memoirist, essayist, and literary critic. He has written numerous books. He also co-produced, wrote, and narrated the Emmy-winning documentary Armed with Language. He has taught at the VONA Writers' Conference for Writers of Color and has worked with the Innocent Classroom, a program to improve teachers' relationships with students of color. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. You got have written quite a book here. It, you're diving into some really, really important issues about really the fabric of our culture in this country and especially kind of these white narratives that we have. What has inspired you to write this book and what was your process like for creating it? Well, I've been writing about race and both about race in general and my own identity. I'm a third generation Japanese American for many years. But then Philando Castile was shot by a policeman on a road not two miles from my home. And it's a road I go down very frequently. I've even got tickets there, two or three tickets there, because it's a notorious speeding trap. And I realized, like, I was never in danger on that road the way Philando Castile was. He was stopped between 50 and 80 times over a 10-year period. And sometimes when I ask, you know, I talk to people about race, I ask, how many times have you been stopped by the police in the last 10 years? You know, 10 times, 20 times, 25 times, 40 times, you know. And by the time I get to 20, there's nobody in the audience who's been stopped that often, right? Unless they're black, right? And I knew people who knew him. One of my students said, it was quoted in the paper as saying he was Mr. Rogers with dreadlocks because he worked at a school as a cook, as a chef. And people said he knew all the kids' names. He knew which ones had allergies. You know, one kid in closing paper get, said to the parent, can you tell them they're wrong? This, you know, our, our Philando is not like that. And it was just so heartbreaking. And I began thinking, because it was a time during Black Lives Matter and all these things were happening with demonstrations, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Michael Brown in Ferguson. And I began reading about 
race even more deeply than I had about history of race, politics and race, economics of race, psychology of race, linguistics of race. And one of the things I discovered was that after African Americans were freed, supposedly, although they weren't, by the Emancipation Proclamation, the problem was, how do you regard black people as they're no longer slaves? And there was a concentrated effort in the social sciences to prove that African-Americans were inherently, that mean genetically, prone to criminality. And the way they would do that is take the statistics of black crime and say that any black person who was arrested was evidence of the inherent criminality of black people. Whereas white people, their crimes were seen as just simply an individual. White individual committed a crime, did not cast a stain. Yeah, that's a bad apple. Yeah. And then they would look for uh, sociological explanations for the crime, right? So that they grew up in poverty, right? So this trope, this idea, this stereotype of the inherent criminality of African-Americans was baked into the culture. And its DNA still lives with us. It still lives in the way that people, and especially white people, think about black people and other people of color. And so you have a statistic like black people and white people smoke marijuana at the exact same rate. But black people are 4.2 times more likely to be arrested for smoking marijuana. And then they're more likely to go to trial. They're more likely to be convicted. They're more likely to serve sentences rather than probation. And they're more likely to serve longer sentences. So this inherent discrimination, this prejudice, runs through the whole justice system. And so, you know, what I realized was that our language for talking about race is so simplified. And it's deliberately simplified. Our ideas about what racism is and how it works are deliberately simplified. And they're inherently made so that racism doesn't exist. And what I mean by that is, first of all, there's this idea that if you look up the definition, maybe the definition changed, but when I started writing the book, it, the definition of racism was always about conscious and overt acts. So one is a racist if one hurls insults or expresses views which are prejudicial or commits actions which are deliberately prejudicial and one avows that I did this because I dislike bad people or I think black people are more criminal or and absent any sort of overt statement of racist intent, then there is no racism. Yeah, then you have bias. So those statistics like Blacks are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana than white people for the same crime. Yeah. It has to be explained by some other magical thinking about how that actually happens. Because nobody in the police department ever says, well, yeah, we discriminate against black people. We look for black people smoking marijuana. We think they smoke more marijuana than white people. Or anybody in the justice system, uh, judges don't deliberately say, yeah, when a black defendant comes in my class, he, he or she's more likely to be guilty. No, people don't say that because they know they're not supposed to say that. 
So we've made a definition in which racism doesn't exist. And the thing is, what we don't understand is there are overt people, races, and mostly people don't express these views in public. They express them in private. You know, we know that between a quarter and a third of white people would say anonymously to a survey, uh, and probably more because they don't talk, honestly, necessarily to surveys, but would say we would object if a black person moved next door to us, right? Or a black person married into our family. So there's that sort of expressed prejudice, but we also know that there is implicit or unconscious bias. So somebody can express their conscious belief in racial equality and still act with racial bias, right? And there's a test that people can go on, a Harvard psychology test on the internet, where it's things like people are quicker to associate positive attributes to white faces and black faces. And Malcolm Gladwell, who's half black himself, writes about this, and he said, even I, even though I'm half black, I tend to have it be slower in attributing positive qualities to black faces and quicker to attribute negative qualities. And then we, the part of the test sometimes is like a children has an object in their hand. White people are more likely to see that object as a gun in a black child's hand than a white child's hand. Well, you can easily see how this can affect how police interpret the actions of black people. And even in the medical field, like black people in emergency rooms wait longer for pain medication for the exact same condition. They receive less pain medication than white patients for the exact same condition. Black people are 4.3 times more likely to have their limbs amputated than white people. Now, I don't believe that everybody in an emergency room is a member of the KKK, right? But they have these inherent programming where they do act with bias. And it's very interesting. I've, I've just been reading Linda Villarosa's book, Under the Skin, which is about healthcare in America. And we have great healthcare disparities between whites and blacks. And she cites a survey that was done in 2016 of about 225, 250 medical students. And half of them showed a conscious belief that black people feel less pain than white people. Okay, now, what's very revealing about this, and when people say, like, why do we need to teach about John Thomas Jefferson's racism? Like, that was way back then. Well, Jefferson was the leading proponent of the ideology of slavery during his time. Mm. And one of the views that he had was that black people feel less pain. So he put that idea out in the culture and was a proponent of it. And that idea shows up in half of these medical students in 2016. So when people want to say it's way long ago, it's not. That DNA, that programming is still infecting us today. And we have to understand the nature of that infection, and we have to really assess how deeply it's seeded in our psyches. Only then can we begin to dismantle it. For 
a lot of families, it feels like, oh, well, let's just not talk about race. We don't make race an issue in our family. We don't want to really go too deep into this. And well, yeah, that's not really an option when something is that deep into our psyche as people that we have these beliefs about how much pain tolerance somebody has, or kind of like you're pointing out in your book, it's a view that some people are less human, that, oh yeah, they just, they don't feel as much pain. And I think a lot of that is, well, we're rationalizing away and trying to rationalize in our head ways to make it seem less bad, this heritage that we have of slavery and of treating people so, so badly that if we can tell ourselves on some unconscious level that, well, they don't experience as much pain, then that maybe diminishes the pain that we feel emotionally at being attached to something just so terrible. Yes. And I want to address the, the first thing you brought up, which is that many people on one level, on a well-meaning level say, well, we shouldn't think about race teaching my kids to be colorblind. Yeah, I want to raise my kids not even to see race or not even to have it on their radar. There's two problems with that. One is, is first of all, that racism exists in every area of our society. These disparities exist in the justice system, in educational outcomes, in medical outcomes, in economic outcomes. You know, black employment has always been twice that of white unemployment throughout our history. So there's a fact of racism. But there's also... This idea that the way to deal with racism is you don't talk about it and don't acknowledge it is one of the tools which allows racism to continue to exist. Because the idea is, well, there's no racism here, but you began talking about racism. And now there's all this controversy and all this tension. So if we don't talk about race, then there's no tension, then there's no racism. And it's this logical loop. That logical loop has not been created by white people, by, by, by black people or people of color. It's been created by white people. Let's not talk about it. And if you begin talking about it, it's a problem. So don't talk about it. And then there's no problem. Yeah, yeah. We're not the ones bringing it up. Why are you bringing it up? Why do why you keep bringing that up? And one of the things I say in the book, because you know this is very important for parents now, right? Because there's all the stupid, stupid, and really prejudicial controversy over the teaching of critical race theory in schools, right? First of all, they are not teaching critical race theory in schools. And if they are, I want my kid to go to that school because it's a complex, complex legal theory that I have to read. You know, and I, I've been to graduate school. I'm a very learned person. And I have to read carefully to understand. So they're not teaching critical race. They're just simply teaching about the history of race in America. Yeah, right. Now, granted, there are some places where there have people of overstep bounds, people have done things which are not productive. Like, I don't think it's productive to divide the students, say, some of you are going to be black, some of you are going to be white, or we're going to pre th those sorts of exercises. But what I do think kids should do is they should learn about the history of our country, the whole truth about our country. And our country began with a great, grand, beautiful idea. We want equality. We want freedom. We want democracy. But from the very beginning, there was another goal, and that was to establish and maintain white supremacy and the ability of white people to oppress and take away the rights 
of Native Americans and Black Americans. So we have these two conflicting goals, and we don't want to deal with the contradictions of those goals in our history, but you cannot understand our history without it. But it's even more simpler than that. They're Moms for Liberty in Tennessee. They wanted to ban a book about Ruby Bridges. Now, for those who don't know, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old Black girl who in 1960 desegregated an elementary school in New Orleans. And she walked through a crowd of angry white people hurling racial insults with signs, some of them spitting. And, you know, my kids read a book about Ruby, Ruby Bridges. And the idea is, well, mom's really, this is going to hurt white kids. It's going to make them feel bad. And there's something inherently racist even about that. Because what they're saying is, my child can't look at Ruby Bridges and identify with her. Can't say, I want to be a Ruby Bridges. This young girl was so courageous. She stood up for what she believed was right. She stood up for American ideals of equality and freedom. They don't think like your white child could be inspired by Ruby Bridges. But beyond that, these white parents don't think, well, would a black parent tell their child, give their child a, a story about Ruby Bridges? Of course they would, right? And that black parent is not going, my child is too fragile to hear that, right? They're going, this is our history. This is how we as a people survived. But beyond that, these white parents from Moms for Liberty, they're like, our white children are so fragile, they can't hear the history of our country. They're not concerned that every black parent in the country at a certain age must tell their child stories of police brutality and police killings because they must prepare their children for when they encounter police and they are terrified that their children will be injured or killed in encounters with police. So every black parent has to tell those kids those stories or something, some version of that, right? And these Bombs for Liberty, they don't care at all that these black parents have to tell their kids these stories, whether they're fragile or not. And they're not fighting that. They're just fighting because they don't want their kids to hear the story of this brave, courageous six-year-old black girl who was part of the movement to desegregate Southern schools. It's ridiculous. I think that there's also a uh, part of us doesn't want to have to teach that to our kids as white parents. We don't want to have to say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we've done. This is what we still do to people of color in our country. And I think there's a deep sense of shame that white people have about this heritage, this really, really terrible heritage that we have. And by sort of silencing that and saying, hey, we don't want to talk about this. Let's not talk about race. Let's not tell this story to our kids. Then we're able to kind of to lock that part of ourselves really deep away. So we just don't have to look at it or don't have to think about it. I want to distinguish between the idea of shame. Now, shame, when one feels shame, one feels that one's self is bad, right? Like there's something inherently bad about it. 
if one feels guilty, one feels guilty about something they've done. And if one feels responsibility for some social condition, that is part of being the, part of the society, right? Being a member of a community. I don't think shame is productive in dealing with race. And I'm, I say this often, I'm, I don't want to shame and guilt white people, you know, and certainly white kids. That's not the purpose. What they should learn is knowledge. They should learn an understanding of how the world works. And then they have to decide for themselves, do I have a responsibility to change this? Am I a member of the society? And if I'm a member of the society in this community, do I believe that everybody here matters? And if I believe everybody here matters, I want to make the world equal for everybody. And that's my responsibility as an American who believes in the principles that the original goal of freedom, equality, and democracy, and who wants to dismantle the other goal of white supremacy. And it's like, I understand that people go through this, sometimes this process, and I talk about this in the book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, about how white people need to go through different psychological stages in order to understand. And first, you may feel this sense of shame, because what the sense of shame does is it makes people incredibly defensive, right? And they can't hear anything, right? And I liken the process of understanding race in one of the essays in The Story's Whiteness Tells Itself to Helen Kubler-Ross's The Five Stages of Grief. So first, you know, and this was about the process of coming to terms with death, right? And there's no mistake in this. Uh, James Baldwin says the question of identity is a question inducing the most profound panic, a panic, a terror as primary as the nightmare of the mortal fall. So to begin to question one's own identity is really as terrifying, he says, as, as understanding you're mortal, you're going to die. So the process that Kubler-Ross lays out is first there's denial. Right. And in the terms of race, that often comes from a sense of shame, because if I admit there's racism, then I'll feel shame as a white person. Right. So there is no racism. You know, you're making too much of it. There was racism in the past. There's not racism in the present. Then there's anger. The next stage is anger. Why are you bringing this up? There is no problems in our organization, at our school, in our community, in our police department until you began to bring it up. And then. Their next stage is bargaining. Okay, well, racism exists, but it's not that bad, is it? You know, it can't be that bad. It's just a few bad apples. And Chris Rock has said, well, would you want to be operated by a surgery department or fly in an airline that had a few bad apples? <laughs> of course not, right? But somehow people of color are supposed to accept that the police department has a few bad apples, right? So you go, it's not systemic, but you don't explain, you know, health disparities or disparities in the justice system in terms of arrest, trial, conviction, sentencing, simply by saying it's a few bad, it's systemic. So then there's grief. And white people often go, you know, they, they grieve for themselves because they had this idea that racism is not as bad as it was. And then they project onto people of color 
like a frailty that they feel. Like, how can you deal with this? How do you deal with this? This is so terrible. And it's an understand, you know, it's a psychological process. And then they get through the grief, and then they come, as Kubler-Ross says, to acceptance. And once you accept it, then you're in question, okay, racism exists. It exists to the extent that we have said it is. It is systemic. It is not, you know, and we're arguing in this country. You know, Ron DeSantis wants to make any statement that racism is systemic outlawed in the schools. He wants to make it so in Florida schools, you cannot say racism is systemic. So this is a defense of the system, right? Because you can't analyze the health disparities or the educational disparities or the justice disparities between blacks and whites without seeing it as systemic. And it's really a denial of racism. So when you come to the conclusion, yes, and you understand racism is systemic in society, its roots go back all the way in our history, which still infect us now. Then you go, what do I do? What do I do? And what I tell people in the whiteness, stories whiteness tells us is first you have to know more. You have to admit like, Often quote Tom Rumsfeld, the former Secretary of Defense, who said there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And really, every one of us in this country has unknown unknowns about race. None of us know everything. Like we may know the history of our own group or some, but we don't know the history of every single group. We don't understand every single group. And to me, that's one of the wonderful things about our country. We're talking about the unconscious narratives embedded within the concept of whiteness. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. When a white author posits this couple, Bill and Bridget, in a Manhattan apartment, arguing, we are to assume that Bill and Bridget, absence any sort of racial or ethnic marker, are white. So this makes whiteness the universal default. It makes whiteness unnoticed. Because what they're also saying is, the fact that Bill and Bridget are white are not important to their identity. Black knowledge has always been suspect, subjective, unofficial, and invalid, unless white people say it is. And so white supremacy reigns even in our consideration of what is official or true knowledge. So black people have been saying this. and. It's not so much that white people began in recent years listening to black people, but they saw these videos and they they go, like, I have to believe my eyes. I don't believe what you were saying. I don't believe all these stories you told about police abuse, but there it is right in front of my eyes. So Alex and I were doing the show and a policeman was shot and killed in a pizza parlor on Lake Street, which is in a place maybe a mile from where George Floyd was killed. And there was a sketch of a black man in dreads, a police sketch. And so Alex would go into a a store and they would look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. He'd go into a bar, they'd look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. They'd go into a restaurant, they'd look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. And after a couple of weeks of this, he's driving home from St. Paul to Minneapolis on the highway. And he has this overwhelming feeling that he's killed somebody. 
And the feeling is so powerful. He has to drive to the side of the road and say to himself, no, you didn't kill anybody. And what he realizes is that America has so inculcated, infected him with this idea of black guilt. And after two weeks of people eyeing him with absolute suspicion, he's taken that on. And he realized his psychic and spiritual health as a, a black person in America had to involve his regaining a sense of innocence. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.